Is it possible that he was like so strong for his body weight that he like did something to the integrity of the knee joint? Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare professionals, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. The first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust, and our second mission is to create a community and foster the education of those professionals and future professionals in the realm of athlete health and performance. This podcast is one way that we fulfill those missions, and if you're one of our six listeners who enjoy the show, do us a favor, give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get the information out to as many people as possible. To learn more about Clinical Athlete, you can head on over to the website, clinicalathlete.com. You can also join the free Kalu Community Facebook group, and that is our headquarters where we have all of our events, our journal clubs, our case studies, our student calls, all of the information about those things goes down there. Awesome discussions, networking on a daily basis, and it's free, Kalu Community Facebook group. And registration for the 2021 virtual Kalu Summit is open. Early bird tickets are going crazy fast. Uh, it's happening September 10th through the 12th. Get your ticket. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, I am joined by co-founder of the Level Up Initiative, Steph Allen. Welcome to our first installment of the Kalu Clinical Files. I'm saying welcome to you, the listener. Kalu Clinical Files. In these episodes, Steph and I will dive into that clinician life. Uh, we're going to discuss real cases. We're going to discuss clinical topics, various questions that come up on a daily basis as clinicians, among many other things, just involving the nuts and bolts, the real-world application of physical rehab and exercise prescription, while, of course, keeping our critical thinking hats on. Uh, Steph and I are both super excited just to be able to learn from each other, uh, but we think that you're going to get a lot out of these as well. And so on this episode, Steph shares a case in which one of her athletes had a little setback in the clinic, and it actually happened during strength testing of the affected body part. So we had an awesome discussion about how Steph navigated that little speed bump with her athlete and what she learned in the process that's going to make her an even better clinician moving forward. We hope you enjoy. Hey, so Steph, how are you? I'm I'm pretty good. It's it's finally like 70 and sunny here, which I feel like we've been waiting for a while. All you Californians oh, get that first, so. <laughs> I mean, it's like every day, all year. That's like Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Honestly, yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the big reasons I stay out here, but I also take it for granted. The only reason I miss winter is so that. Like when those days come in the spring, it's so amazing and magical. And here I'm just like, man, yeah, oh, bl blue sky. That's, <laughs> that's true. It does make it, you know, it's like can't have light without dark. Can't have yeah, yeah, yeah all, all that, that all stuff. that nonsense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So this is going to be our our first little series here, and I think we've 
come up with a, a preliminary name. We're going to call these the CALU clinical files. Oh, yeah. Uh, or CALU clinical files for all you weirdos <laughs> out there. And it's going to kind of be me and Steph riffing on cases, you know, real life, real life uh, scenarios and cases that we're working on as clinicians that things are going well, maybe things are not going so well, um, learning from each other, but also just, just kind of putting out these situations to, to all the listeners who are probably experiencing very similar things um, in, their, in their clinical setting. So we're really excited about this. And Steph, anybody who's listening, I mean, we only have six <laughs> listeners on the clinical athlete side of things, but they're all probably familiar <laughs> with you. But just in case, can you give a little bit of background on yourself and where you are as a, as a clinician and what your, what your interests are and, and that sort of thing? You mean everything that led up to my pinnacle of being on the Cali Clinical Files? Clearly, <laughs> I didn't, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't want to go there. Um, but it's okay. But since we're yeah. going there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so those who don't know me, I've been on Clinical Athlete a couple times before, but now part of the Clinical Athlete Level Up or Calu team. And I hail originally from New Jersey, so nobody judge me. Um, I am now currently at Boston PC and Wellness in Boston, along with Zach and a pretty awesome team um, and part of the leadership team uh, of Calu. I have, I guess it's been a little bit more fast track the last two or three years, but over my first five or six years of being a PT, I dove fairly deep into ACL rehab and now that's pretty much entirely what I do. Um, however, as you're going to see from some of the cases that I bring up, they won't all be ACL cases, but there's a lot of, as I was telling Quinn, there's a lot of knees in my life. Um, there, there's just a lot of things that even still I come across that make me question or that are a little bit of a struggle. Um, so anyway, that's, that's mostly where I'm at right now. And I also do some online coaching as well. Um, but most of my caseload in the clinic is um, individuals or are individuals who have gone through um, an ACL injury and or surgery, not always surgery. Um, yeah, that's my nerd passion. Awesome. And our idea with this, these clinical files, is that taking kind of the the you know philosophies of of Calu clinical athlete level up exercise prescription critical thinking communication on kind of for our conversations having exercise prescription kind of be the the basis of things with all of these other principles just kind of embedded and and rooted in here you know but we're going to kind of you know talk about some nuts and bolts of of how we program our rehab and and the whys and the whats and and all these types of things. So uh, hopefully it'll be super, super valuable. It's going to be valuable for us. Um, and for this show in particular, each of us, uh, both of us have a case to talk about. And I'm going to let you take the floor first, Steph, and, and then we'll riff a little bit. Thank you, Quinn. So I'm actually excited. Well, I'm excited in general about all this, but I'm excited in particular about this case because it's it was probably the one that most made me stop in my tracks and think like, oh, 
you know what, like, what do I do? And I feel like those are the moments as a clinician that really help you grow the most. So therefore, if it's something that I can share with you guys, then hopefully if and when something similar happens to you in ACL rehab or other rehab, um, then you can refer back to this. So the particular individual I'm going to tell you about is a high school senior, very high level skier, competitive, and actually the way he tore his ACL was, and I'm going to forget the term because I don't follow competitive skiing and there's probably people out there that, that know it, but the person that goes down the slope or the course first to make sure that the course itself is safe and there's not like patches of ice or branches or something like that for the actual competitors. So obviously those people have to be pretty highly skilled. Um, That is actually how he tore it. He was doing his job of checking out the course and anyway, ended up starting prehab with us and then COVID hit. So he didn't get surgery for uh, I think it was like five or six months, which ended up being fine. Like he, he strengthened a lot, like had full range of motion, pretty good strength. We started some of some low level plyos and he was running a little bit. Um, then he had surgery at a patellar autograph. So his own patellar tendon. And he really, for the first four, four or so months was freaking cruising like no, no real issues. Um, not a real big guy, like 140 and maybe five, eight, five, nine. So when we were doing original strength testing at about three months out, he was looking really good. I don't remember the exact numbers, but he was close to, I think 60%, 55 or 60% of limb symmetry index for quads. So meaning quad output on the non-surgery side and quad output on the surgery side were um, not too far off. So, and hamstrings were a little behind, but we see that a lot. So then we did testing again around six or seven months and for almost a week, and this is a kid who never complains. So for almost a week, he was saying that he had like decent anterior knee pain. And it had come on and off before then, but again, with bone pedeller bone, if we keep it at a low level, I tell people not to freak out because um, there is a little bit of kind of trust the process and with time and getting stronger, that usually resolves. Um, so this was different though because not only had he mentioned it, so I knew it was different because he never mentions anything that, that bothers him, but he had mentioned things like it felt almost quote unquote like wobbly. And I was like, oh, Jesus, like, is there something, did we do something with, is, is it possible that he was like so strong for his body weight that he like did something to, you know, the integrity of the knee joint? So then I'm freaking out and I immediately, um, immediately text my mentor, Derek Miles, and also asked Laura opposite all too, but um, they had seen that before and we talked a little bit more about it and they reassured me, you know, keep, keep an eye on if it lasts more than like a week and a half, two weeks, maybe check into stuff, but it didn't, thank goodness. And we really, from that point on, I, I think I'll, I'll pause after I finish this up to kind of like tell you what I ended up doing, what ended up happening. Um, 
but it was a, a moment of pause for me as a clinician because there was, it didn't, it didn't really make sense. And I thought to myself, there weren't things like AMI or arthrogenic muscle inhibition or other really high levels of pain that were associated with what I would think of as something like developing patellar tendinopathy after bone patellar bone graft. So, um, it did really kind of make me question my thought process leading up to this test and how I clearly didn't prepare him for this max effort isometric test. Um, so before I kind of like dive into what I did from there, Quinn, does that make sense? Do you have questions? Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. When he, so you tested it first at three months. Yep, he was fine. And what's the, you're testing with an um, inline handheld? Yes. Like a Mark Good 10? Good question. I did not differentiate that. So, yeah, we have the Mark 10. It's, it's isometric, and I test at 60 degrees, but it is max effort. Yeah. Okay. So, and you did that at three months, mm-hmm. and he was okay with it. Yep. Um, and limb symmetry, the quad index was like 50, 60%. He was getting close to 60, yeah. Not quite okay. there yet. What was, what did he hit at that second test? The one that flared him up. He was, you know what I can tell you, hang on a second, but it was, it was close to 90. And then we tested again this past week and he was over a hundred, at least with quad, not hamstring. How, how far out is he now? He will be a year in June. Oh, cool. Okay. So, so we've got, you might've tested more, but we've got now three different time points. Three months, he was good. 50, 60%. Six months was the flare mm-hmm. up. He hit almost 90 and then now 12 months we're, we're, we're cruising. That's awesome. So if was, was he feeling good, like leading into that second test, had there been any, any roadblocks, significant speed bumps, setbacks, those types of things? Of that time period, like the two to three months before he did mention most, like that was the most often I had heard him mention some anterior knee discomfort with things like particularly our plyos. So like with jumping Mm. that bothered him. We had already been doing some heavy knee extension isometrics, but we did it on the knee extension machine, not, um, a different type, which I'll tell you about that we did after, um, but he did, you know, retrospectively looking, he did mention it more often in that period of time. So I guess that would be like months four and five. Um, again, that's another time period, time period of time where we're ramping up everything. Strength. He was running a little bit on his own. Yeah. I was like definitely keeping tabs on it, but that's an overall ramp up time. So, you know, in the grand scheme, it makes sense. Okay. So it sounds like to me that there wasn't anything out of the ordinary considering the graft type, some anterior knee pain mm-hmm. off and on with some of the stuff is pretty common. Um, so, the, so, so this kind of, this, this thing, this, this blow up was pretty unexpected. Yeah. And I'm just looking at his, um, the test before this past one and the one where it was painful, he got, there was still a significant difference. He was um, about 66% of his right 
quad to left quad, but he was over body weight for both. So he, he weighs about 140 pounds, maybe 145. Um, on his left, he output average 208 pounds. And on his right, the time that it flared, it was 168. Okay. So a lot of times you'll see the other way around where the limb symmetry index might look, start looking even and you're like, Oh sweet. But then their, their relative to body weight strength is down sometimes on both sides. Um, okay. So I think from this point, my questions have to do with the preparation leading up and the type of isometric that a, that an inline isometric test is versus other types of isometrics. And it sounds like you're kind of heading that way as well. So I'll pass it back to you on that. (laughs) Yeah. So immediately I, and I hope this makes people feel good because I do this every day. And this is something that literally in the last couple of months, I'm like, you know, brain blast, like, duh, why don't I do more of this? Um, so the difference between the knee extension isometrics is that it's called yielding isometrics. So that means that there is still some up and down leeway. So you're, you're holding, think about a knee extension machine and ours is just an attachment to a bench. So it's not super, it's not like the machine in the gym. So there is, when they're holding it there, there is some like teetering back and forth. They're not kicking straight into like, basically like they'd be kicking into a wall. So there's some movement there. There's some give, there's not a constant force for that whole hold that they're doing. So they can usually hold for like 30 or 40 seconds. That is helpful to load the patellar tendon, quad tendon, and extensor mechanism in general, but it doesn't quite mimic what happens when they do the max effort isometric strength test. What happens then would be more of what would be called an overcoming isometric, which is um, the setup we do is they sit on a row box in front of a bar across the rack low down near like their high ankle and you put the little squat pad on the rack and they kick into that at about 60 degrees but they kick hard like I stand behind them on the box because if they kick hard enough they're gonna push themselves off the box um so long story short we diverted all isometrics to well I'm sorry not all we did some like single leg wall sits and that kind of stuff but as far as open chain stuff that would mimic the test itself Um, we went to doing those overcoming isometrics. I usually did them after the warm um, before we got into stuff. I tried, I tried both, both in the, in the beginning of the session and at the end, but we did them in one set, one way, shape or form every session, meaning at least twice a week when he was with me. And, um, and we did that for, you know, eight plus weeks before we tested again. And other than some other kind of subtle changes to his programming, that was really the only main thing that I did. And I talked to him about it too. I told him like, this is probably just because whether it was patellar tendon, quad tendon, the entire extensor mechanism, which was another thing I talked to Eric and and Derek about. um, It wasn't, it wasn't prepared for the amount of force that you put through it. So the interesting concept here, which also ended up being a way I could spin it, into a positive to him because think about it. This is the athlete who did strength testing and then was off for a week and couldn't really do much. So he's thinking, what the heck? I mean, you know, I'm almost like 
six plus months out here. Why is this bothering me? So when I, when the smoke cleared, (laughs) the clouds went away, you know, I was able to tell them that, you know, in theory, your muscle strength, like your quad muscle strength was actually higher than potentially either the patellar tendon or that whole extensor mechanism, like the quad tendon into all the soft tissue and everything where it inserts down on the tibia, that part of it just couldn't, you were too strong is basically what I told him. (laughs) So again, I don't know if that's like without nuance fully true, but in essence, what we did then with something like the overcoming ISOs was build up, you know, hopefully, ideally, and the theory was to build up the tolerance for that entire extensor mechanism, not just his quad, because his quad was doing pretty damn well. And when you were mentioning having then reincorporated some of the overcoming isometrics, you were talking specifically after that little road bump, you guys started to put that more, and then the next time you tested, things went a lot better. Yeah, we tested this past week, and he came in the next day. He's like, I haven't seen this kid get really animated about about much. He's very like even keeled in general. And he's like, yeah, it was only a little bit sore. It feels fine today. I'm like, awesome. (laughs) Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Here's your brain break from this awesome clinical file conversation with Steph Allen. Obviously, if you haven't gotten your ticket yet for the 2021 Kalu Summit, get on that. The link is in the show notes. Our lowest prices are going fast. We promise that you are not going to want to miss this. You can head to the link in the show notes and you can see the speaker lineup. You can download an event PDF. It's going to give you all the details. And I'm pretty sure once you read about it, you're going to want in. So we will see you there. And now back to the show. So the overcoming versus yielding isometrics, um, other terms that you might, that people might hear overcoming being synonymous with a push an isometric push and a yielding isometric being synonymous with the isometric hold, which the hold is kind of what you were describing as just kicking out and then against the set resistance and just holding a certain position, which are awesome. Um, those tend to be longer holds and the overall load is less like he, you would have had to put 160 cause he kicked out 160 pounds during the test. So to do an isometric hold, you'd he'd have to kick out 160 and hold, which wouldn't, you know, usually the weight's lighter because you're prescribing those holds longer. So um, we had Dustin Aranchek on the Clinical Athlete Podcast some weeks ago, and he did the isometric systematic review that pretty much is the one that I reference like constantly for these terms and all these things. It's an awesome resource. It's just making me think of that. But I, you know, there's this principle called Goodhart's Law that essentially states when the measure becomes the target, that measure ceases to be a good measure. Meaning when you start training for the test just for the sake of passing the test, now the test loses some of its meaning. And that's kind of just general general heuristic overall principle that I think about a lot. However, I do think... In, in instances like this, where the test is so specific to a certain quality, like a hop test is actually, you know, hop, horizontal hop tests get a lot of flack. 
um, mostly because people figure out how to beat them and how to cheat them because they figure out how to just pass it. They know what the clinician's looking for and they can just do the thing. But the hop tests are valuable if the athlete has no idea what the heck's going on. The problem is you would just have to not hop them ever and like, and not, you know, so you're so give and take. But in this scenario, the positive is that the test did a really good job at highlighting where this athlete was deficient. Now, that's taken the human element out of the equation. You as a clinician, because this has happened to me, um, athletes have been flared up and it's literally, I mean, it, who else is there to blame sometimes when I just look inward, like I'm writing the program. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and obviously we are hard on ourselves, but so that's a piece of it. And then obviously for the athlete, like it sucks to have a flared up knee, of course, like that's no fun. So those are obviously downsides of this situation, but the test did its job. And, and that's a, it's an education point. Like it's exactly what you told them, you know, you weren't prepared for this and now we know. Uh, and, and so there's so much to take from that, you know, for everybody. Um, and even like wall sits, cause I think about exercises like that too. You know, how can, how can we do things to drive that knee extension and all these things, but even like wall sits, I find myself more recently cueing people to put more force into the ground than they need to actually hold the position. Cause when people get good at wall sits, they can just kind of like chill like a plank you know, you find an efficient, comfortable position. But now I'm like, okay, no. If it's a certain level of easy, at no point should a wall sit be easy because you can go lower, you can bring your foot closer to the wall, or you can push harder volitionally. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this was awesome. Um, do, you ever, do you ever use the dynamometer as, like, feedback, like, for training? We started to play around with that idea... Um, we haven't done it a ton. I've done it almost like kind of while doing the testing, but right now the way the, the amount, and again, it's like, I'm going to be fully honest, the amount and time that it takes to set it up in our Mm. clinic when we have like 30 to 40 minute, uh, blocks is, is pretty non-conducive to that. Um, but what I would, (laughs) <laughs> my next thing on the wish list to, to talk to our boss and owner about, um, because we are getting involved with some local high schools around and the, the athletic trainers there and everything and developing a relationship would be like, um, force plates and, or the, mm. how do you say it? Is it tin deke tin? What's, what's the little thing that does like the tin deck? Yeah. Cause you can tin use deck. feedback with yep. that as well. Um, and so that not, setup yes. wouldn't necessarily require, you know, especially now we have a K pulley, so I could just we could just anchor that, and the and the yeah. feedback could be there. So these are all things, definitely Quinn, that are swirling around in my head. We just haven't actually set them up yet. Totally, I, the feedback is not because, like you mentioned, your setup for the overcoming or the um, yeah overcoming isometric uh, pushes now, like pushing into a, a rack that's in front of you. That's great because that bar is not going anywhere. But that that feedback, and when you say feedback, like if the person can literally see how hard they're pushing from a force standpoint, like the numbers are in front of their face, they won't trail off 
you can like establish a minimum to stay at, you know, it's just really nice. And I'm with you on the setup for testing takes just a long time to, to make it repeatable and reliable for training. I'm not as much of a stickler on the angles and, and these types of things. And the tin deck unit does t- come with an app. It's, it's really nice. I've been, and just because of that, I've been using it more as a training tool. Um, in these scenarios, I've also found that knee angle matters. Like what I've done in the past, I've flared people up by having a deeper knee angle that they weren't quite ready to do an ice to do a maximal test. And that's not what you did. Like you tested at 60, which is where you're going to produce the most force, but also typically where things are tested for isometric knee extension, uh, peak torque. I've tested at 90 before, which creates a lot more um, effort and like compressive load on the patella. And you're not going to get as high of a peak torque. So the mistake that I've made is when people aren't even ready for, or they're not even at like a, a ready for 60, I've cranked them at 90 for no good reason. And that, and then that flared them up. And sometimes it's not even tendon. Sometimes it would be like patellofemoral kind of stuff because the because of that compressive load on the patella. So I, I was just uh, something that popped into my head as I was thinking back to th- when this has kind of happened to me as well. Yeah, I learned I've learned that the hard way. So I actually won't. I might do closer to ninety. I'm I'm, I'm not even sure if I would do full ninety anymore, just specifically for. Isometric. So one of the other things that I had talked to Eric about after this, um, you know, my mini existential crisis <laughs> after this uh, happening, but is that you can actually end up from a torque perspective generating more isometrically than you can. Oh, yeah. So again, and like another like oh duh like that makes sense you know what i mean you're pushing 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 and and you can ramp up a ton that way and it's going to be different than something like even isokinetic so i realized that the pat in the past when i've done both 90 and 60 like and again i would do them in the same session that's kind of a lot if you're asking somebody to do three trials in two different positions on both legs hamstring and quad so I got away from that and potentially like on people's last test, maybe do something that's a little closer to like 70 or 80. But I just found so much more that people started like dreading the test. And now I feel like since most people tolerate 60 degrees pretty well, that they start to actually look forward to the test, which again is like, I know part of um, contextual factors and you don't want to like, you know, give certain people advantage or whatever it is, but I would much rather them be excited about the test than like nervous or see it as something. Your point about rate, I think is important in these cases because when you're pushing against something that's not moving, you can spike your rate and, and isometric test is also gold standard for rate of torque or rate of force development testing as well for that exact reason because there's no give in the system. But you but it's a lot. So I will train at ninety. I've I've gotten away from testing at ninety 
mostly unless my equipment setup necessitates it. And sometimes like whatever angle I get is the angle that I get. And I just have to make that the angle for the person. Cause I don't, it's, my testing setup is not perfect. Um, we'll train at 90, but the ramp up is a lot more conservative. Like I'll tell them, I want you to get to a peak that you're comfortable with, but I want you, you, you have full freedom to ramp up to that peak over the course of three, four five seconds as we're, yeah. as we're, tra- as we're training for it, for that exact reason. Um, How do you program that? I um, will do like, let's say sets of, they'll have like a stopwatch in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got this app. It's like a, a interval timer app where you can do like countdown to when a rep is going to start. There's mm-hmm. a lot of apps like this. And so their, their, over, their ramp up period to their peak is kind of the countdown to the rep actually starting. And then the rep will last like five seconds. And then I'll let them ramp down. Yeah. We'll rest for 10 seconds or something like that. And so it's like little pulses, but, there's a, but they're not spikes, at least initially. Because, um, I mean, you do need that quality even at those deep knee angles, because that's what like cutting and decelerating and jumping and landing and all these things. Yeah. Um, I, it, yeah, it's, it's just f- figuring out like when and how much and, and also like the time that you have with this person. Yeah. So you're You've inspired so you're, me though. I have. I'm going to, I'm going to figure <laughs> It's like, what did I do? But no, I mean, I think the, without the full setup that I can take the, and when we have, we have chains, we have, uh, like TRX ropes with carabiners that we could just set up on a, on the bench even and face them away from the rig. Yeah. 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 Exactly. All right, fine. I'm going to do it. (laughs) It'll be fun. Yeah. Um, and that Tindek unit, we keep bringing it up. We don't, I don't have any, I have no, you know, affiliation with them. I just have the thing. I bought one. And the app is, is really cool. It does rate of torque, but the sampling rate, you can pretty much just ignore that. Um, it yeah. should just do the force thing. And, and you can kick into it, and it shows you, like, real time uh, compared to, like, your target or your peak. It's, it's super cool, and, and I think that just helps with motivation. It kind of makes it fun. Um, more fun for people, but so you're still working with this athlete. Yeah. So he is, um, he's going to college obviously in August. So he has kind of, he just wanted to sort of stay on, like he's more in the, I guess what I would categorize like post formal PT and more of the return to sport training sort of thing. Yeah. Um, he did play soccer in high school. He doesn't really have an interest in playing in college, but, and isn't at least first year going to try out for ski team. He's going to UVM. Um, but he could, he's like, I I mostly just want to know that if I wanted to compete again, that I could. So that's what I'm treating his rehab like, because, you know, and I've talked to Laura about this too skiers actually have some unique considerations because they're doing like, yes, you need that kind of springy and power production and rate of force development qualities, but you also need a lot of force absorption qualities and they do a lot of stuff with pretty bent knees. 
Um, so in general, it's also been a learning, just his entire case has been a learning curve for me because I'm so used to soccer and basketball and volleyball and a lot of jumping and cutting and change of direction and skiing is just a little bit different. One thing I forgot to ask, were there any other tests that were also problematic or maybe even that checked out well in the kind of the time period around when he flared? Yeah, he was doing, um, again, kind of like what you said before, I try not to do the same types of hopping and plyos. I try to switch those up a decent amount so that nobody gets too comfortable doing certain ones. So with the, with those things like a, um, like a reactive run to like when to stop on one leg and do backpedal. So they're doing that horizontal, um, single leg hurdle hops, stuff like that. Like that was all starting to feel better. So that was kind of like another reason why I maybe, and who knows, maybe that was something where we know so much now about how the body will divert away from loading the knee within the same limb, but things will look and feel symmetrical. So those could have started to feel better because his body was learning how to unload the knee while still doing it. Um, so that is something that like, obviously I know it's hard to, you can't like predict that or see it really as a clinician, but I'm, you know, when you look back on it, I'm like, that could have very well been happening, even though the subjective report with those types of things was that, that it was feeling better, you know, manual feeling, manual full extension, and he had full flexion, like all that kind of stuff. Um, that was all on the up and up. So it was just kind of a little out of left field, seemingly. Yeah. Well, I think this is this has been really helpful for me. I think it's going to be really, really helpful for people as well. Like hindsight's always twenty twenty. <laughs> you know, and it's not like we learn from cases like this and then, Oh cool. This is never going to happen again. Cause I learned all of the things to learn. No, <laughs> it's going to happen again in some way, shape or form, like to all of us. Um, but then if it does like allow you to clean up one or two things that maybe were or weren't even a, a factor, you know, you really don't know. Um, but you're just kind of, uh, making your, your, your best guess at, at what could have been, you know, the big rocks as far as contributors. And it sounds like it was a blessing in disguise. I agree. Cause now I won't, I mean, that's the one thing too. I think if I were to have the two biggest takeaways, I think were that don't, don't forget what else can be going on in the body that's like beyond what we can see and what we're told. Mm -hmm. And again, that doesn't mean that like what you're doing is futile or <laughs> that, you know, you shouldn't necessarily quote unquote stay the course, but you know, just know that sometimes that's happening. Even if everything else is looking good, that's why we test. So then that that's second exactly. piece is like, literally this is why it's important to test because even though it was the test position that was an issue, how do I know if I didn't test that his, you know, let's say it fits with the conclusion that 
his extensor mechanism, if you will, versus the quad, hadn't necessarily built back up tolerance. Makes sense if he had a patellar tendon autograft, you have part of your tendon gone, and he was rehabbing really, really well. So the force that now was, he was calling upon the extensor mechanism to withstand, it could not. And I think to myself, like, I'm so grateful for testing because even though it's not an isokinetic machine, maybe the isokinetic machine wouldn't have picked up on that because you don't generate that type of force unless it's isometric like that. So I, I guess the biggest things was like, you know, continue to question and always try and test in one way, shape or form. And I'll go back to like the test of this job. It's a gut punch to all parties involved. But it's it, what you just said, like, this is why we test. And a lot of times the quad, like, a lot of times it's just, you know, kind of jumping around. The rehab's going great. All their exercises feel good. Full range of motion. They're six months. It's like, all right, see ya. Because you assume that all those things that look good and, like, you've ticked boxes off on all of these other things, you would assume, oh, well, like a knee extension, obviously he's going to be good there because that's not even functional. Blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, and it's like there's this um, this shadow that you're not seeing, like this kind of this thing that you wouldn't that you wouldn't have known if you didn't control for that. Super, super valuable. Intent was my my last note here. Like intent is this thing that we talk about, but when I think about athletes like skiers too like i've i've seen skiers pass me like i can't ski but i've been there and they go real fast and i can hear like the thud in the the ground and also like athletes who cut like you know being on the court or on the field and they just cut so hard and the intent of these athletic moves is maximal and the forces are so high that I think that it's it's hard to recreate that in the clinic, and I think sometimes we don't, we're scared to, um, or whatever. But in a test like this, that's like, all right, give it all you got. It's it's a test of like what you said, like truly, let's try to mimic the intent that you would also have, and look what happened. Cool and useful, valuable information. Yeah. That's awesome. And it sounds like a super good kid, too. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I like, if I ever have a son, I would love <laughs> him to be like this kid, that, that kind of kid, you know? I think so. I've seen him on your stories. Yeah. Potentially doing some, doing some stuff. My, yeah. my boy, Jack, he wouldn't, he wouldn't care. He gave, he gave me permission. He's good. Isn't he the one that crushed, like, 225 deadlifts for, for 10. 77 reps? <laughs> yeah, he's not big. Like I saw, I remember it now. No, no, I I think uh, strength relative to body weight. Well, actually, I'll tell you his torque. Because remember the quad, the quad cutoff for torque is three. This past time, on the right, he was four newton meters per kilogram mm-hmm. and three point four nine on his non-surgery side. The four was on his surgery side. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, and that's another thing too with like relative. It's it all it's all important, but it's all still like an individual. So right. I think some of these 
because we talk about limb symmetry index. Um, that's like minimum, like low hanging fruit. Get the get the involved side to be as close or or the same or even surpass as, as the non involved side. So like even is is good, even Steven. But then you're like, okay, well even is cool, but what if they're just both under the under the threshold that they need? To, right, they to can do be. The thing? Those can be deceiving if you're not a looking at the actual poundage or kilogram output, and b if you're not putting it relative to their body weight. Because the the and same thing with hamstring to quad too. Like their hamstring to quad ratio might look really good, but they're it's it's because and often a lot of cases it's because the quad output is so low. Right. That yeah. 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 It, so it is, looks is like it a the strong hamstring, hamstring quad, or a weak quad. Right. Yeah. And then, and then it's individual because even those three newton meter, uh, three kilogram per newton meter, relative thresholds are like, it's like you should be hitting that if you're going back to athletics because a lot of the studies that those numbers are coming from are like recreational or masters level uh, individuals aren't necessarily athletes. So yeah, and for Jack, you know, this is he's just, he's relatively strong, so his baseline is above those numbers. So now you're just kind of looking at, like, okay, those are cool, like, starting points. But for this kid, you know, really, really, really good. We hope you enjoyed this Clinical Files conversation with myself and Steph Allen. Lots more coming your way. And as always, thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. And one more time, go to the link in the show notes, get your ticket for the 2021 Virtual Calu Summit. It's going to be a blast. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon.